This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. So uh, anyway, let's get to it. We have an incredible guest with us this week, best-selling author and founding pastor of the Worship Center in Birmingham, Alabama, Van Moody is here, and I am so excited to get into it with him. So to set the stage, let's talk about relationships and the importance of giving. What most people forget about the book of Exodus, even those who know it really well, is that nearly the entire second half of the book is dedicated to one thing and one thing only, and that is building the tabernacle, which, you know, is a fancy word for a temple. So why? Why go into such exhaustive detail about this really technical building process, the instructions, the actual building? I mean, like the Hollywood take on building the temple would have been to just make it into a montage and the whole thing would have been over, you know, in the time it took to play Eye of the Tiger, right? So I think the answer is pretty clear if you think about it, right? So remember that great bit from Chris Rock. If God is truly all powerful, he created the world and everything, why would he need your help? And so the way I think about it is, hey, it's a good question. Right until this point in the narrative of the book of Exodus, God had literally done everything for the Israelites. When they were slaves, he freed them. When they were being chased by the Egyptians, he split the sea for them. When they were thirsty, he gave them water from a rock. When they were hungry, he gave them manna from heaven. That's where that phrase comes from. But that's actually the whole problem. Because God's goal in the book of Exodus wasn't simply to put on a great show. It wasn't Laser Floyd. It was to create a relationship with his people and thereby modeling positive relationships for humanity. And a relationship is a dialogue. It's a give and take. And until this point in the story, God had done all the giving, while the Israelites had done all of the taking. So that's why God commands the Israelites to build him a temple, and more importantly, to do it using their own property. As God says to Moses, speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. In other words, I've given you everything until now. So now I'm giving you the opportunity to do some giving. Because that's the way for us to have a real relationship. And that's why maybe my favorite Jewish tradition is the law found in the Talmud that everyone has to give charity, including someone who is supported entirely by charity himself. So how does that make sense? If all your money comes from charity, why do you have to give some of it away? Wouldn't it be much more efficient for the original giver just to give it in the first place? That way you cut out the middleman? And the answer, of course, is that giving is good for us. First of all, it gives us a sense of dignity and self-worth. And second of all, it's a way for us to show others that we care about them. We want them in our lives enough to sacrifice something. In short, we want a real relationship with them. And this message is so crucial today as we think about the American future, for example. We're watching society break down in so many different ways. Political polarization, racial polarization, increasing isolation due to COVID. I mean, I can't think of any topic more important today than talking about how to repair and nurture healthy relationships. So to talk about this, I brought on one of America's most important faith leaders and a man who literally wrote the book on healthy relationships. He's the founding pastor of the Worship Center in Birmingham, Alabama, author of The People Factor, Van Moody. Pastor Van, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you, Rabbi Ari, for having me. Uh, man, your monologue and open was so spot on, and I'm excited for this conversation today. It's definitely what we need. Well, as someone who's learned a lot from you from afar, I'm so excited to have you, not in person, obviously, but at least in conversation. So there are a lot of books out there on improving relationships. Certainly. And, you know, usually what turns me off from them is that they're drawing on, like, the thinnest areas of human experience. Like, either they're just giving you common sense dressed up with jargon, or they're synthesizing the latest social science research that'll be debunked or fail to replicate by tomorrow. But what I loved about your approach in The People Factor is that you're actually drawing on a deep, ancient tradition of wisdom, namely the Bible. So why should your average American think about the Bible when they're thinking about relationships? Well, you know, the, the easiest way for me to illustrate this or to describe the why is when you think about when something breaks down, you definitely want to consult the manufacturer. Tomorrow, I've got to go pick up my car from being serviced. And I'm probably not the quintessential man in that I don't know everything about cars and I don't adequately know how to change spark plugs and things like that. And while some may consider that a bad thing, I don't because I know how to get the car to the manufacturer. You know, I'm able to take my car to the individual who made it. And that's really a very simple premise that I think we can all understand, but that really is the heart of the why for consulting the Bible when it relates to matters of relationship. God created relationship. We know that the very first relationship, even the first understanding of a couple and even the family, God ordained with Adam and Eve. And so it, it makes sense then that when we see splinters and fracturing and just complete breakdown of all things relational, that we consult the manufacturer, that we look at the handbook, if you will, of the person that created relationships from the very beginning, which is why I've always maintained that the greatest source for relational wisdom is, in fact, the Bible. I just think the challenge for many people in present day is that we don't consult it often enough. When I think about it, you know, one of the core problems actually afflicting America today is that we Americans, as you said, I mean, in a larger sense, we don't have a shared language to talk about anything important anymore. Right. And in fact, in the history of this country, the only common language we've ever had for that purpose has been the language of the Bible, especially the books of Moses, the Hebrew prophets. And today, while large numbers of Americans, I think last time I saw the research, like six in 10 adults, one of the few areas of like consensus in society say the Bible has transformed their lives for the better. We're also seeing a major decrease in biblical literacy. And I love how you put it. People just haven't been consulting the manual lately. And so we have this crazy situation where Americans have a lot of respect for the Bible, unusually so for a Western country, but also have no idea what it says at even a basic level. So what do we do about this? Is there a way for us to bring the Bible back into civic life? Yeah, I actually think that there is. And I think that your podcast is a prime example of it. I think what people have to remember, and I think for those that don't know this, we have to introduce them to it. And that is that the Bible actually is a manual that, that contains the answers for all of the present-day problems we face. You know, one of the things that's consistent across time that spans the gap of political differences, racial differences, socio-political differences, economic differences, is that we all wrestle with the challenges of life. We all go through fundamental issues that really cause us to search for quintessential answers. You know, there are existential problems of life that no one escapes. And so I think what makes the Bible extremely attractive and how we have to position it is so that people understand that there is one critical source 
that has the answers, and the answers are time-tested. You know, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it contains truth, and truth lasts. You know, truth is, is never out of style. Truth doesn't change like popular culture. And I think in a world that's so transient, in a world where so many things change at the drop of the dime, I think it's increasingly valuable to have something that is true and that's tried and tested. But I think what we have to do is I think we have to introduce it to individuals or help connect the dots for them, that those fundamental questions that they're asking, there are answers for those fundamental questions in a time-tested way. A lot of individuals just don't know it. You talked about the biblical literacy rate going down in our country. And I think what that points to is a lot of people are asking questions. They just don't know where to go to get the answers. And I think that that's one of the main responsibilities of the faith community is to help people bridge that gap. But I think they've got to do it and we've got to do it. And, and so I, we're not exempt for this. This is our responsibility. We, yeah. we have to do it in ways that are relevant, in ways that speak to where people are today. So, you know, the truth of the Bible never changes, but the way that it's communicated, I think, must change. It's this notion of balancing uh, the authenticity of the Word of God with also the attractiveness um, that makes it palatable for people in our present-day culture. And so I think that faith leaders have to balance both. And I don't think you can do one without the other. I think the risk of being, you know, overly attractive will then decrease your ability to be authentic. And I think the risk of being overly authentic sometimes makes you unattractive. So I think you've got to balance both well, but I, I think that that also presents an opportunity of great hope for where we are in our present day culture. And the truth is, you know, thinking about culture, I think about this often. So, well, you know, one of the things I realized shortly before we spoke is that we know people in common. So yep. just, you know, one person I, I thought of was Bishop Kenneth Ulmer out on the West Coast, yep. who I believe is a teacher of yours. Yes. Um, or, or a mentor. Yes. You know, I've been thinking about this a ton, and it so gets to the question that you just raised about the visibility or the viability of the Bible and biblical values in the mainstream culture. And I've thought about this in the context of teachers, right? So, you know, I mentioned to you right before the podcast, actually, I lost my my grandfather this year, Rabbi Norman Lamb. May his memory be a blessing. And he was my dearest teacher. He gave me my rabbinical ordination. But more important than that, I, I just, I learned everything that I know and everything that I am from him. Mm -hmm. And when I speak to people who kind of don't come from a traditional communal background, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam or what have you, if I'm speaking to kind of someone who's just sort of an average person in the culture, they get the, you know, why I would miss him from the perspective of a family relationship. But what I find is often missing is this appreciation for the authority position that he had in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've had teachers in a schooling sense, but he was a teacher in the truest sense of mentorship, of authority, of wisdom, and of experience. And, you know, we're living in a culture that is increasingly skeptical of all of those things, experience, you know, the power of the past, the power of tradition. So why are teachers, not teachers in a schooling sense, or not just in a schooling sense, why are teachers like that important? And why should they... Or should they be more visible in kind of the, the popular culture, as it were? Well, let me answer the first part of your question, and then let me speak to whether or not they should be visible. Number one, what we have to understand is that there is a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I think that the challenge of our present-day culture is that we live in a culture where knowledge is readily accessible you know, the dawn of the internet and social media. I mean, people can access information now 
with a, a few clicks and you know now yeah, you have the library of alexandria in your pocket exactly and 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 sometimes you don't even have to click i mean with alexa and <laughs> siri and everybody else it's just a matter of raising a question and that information is provided for you but there's a premium um, even with all of this knowledge accessible that has to be placed on wisdom learned experience and the ability to synthesize that knowledge because you've walked it out and you also have this weight of that lived experience and seeing the end result of this knowledge being played out and the repercussions. You know, one of the ways that I often explain this is that I think that there are a lot of individuals in our present day culture that know the price of everything, but they don't really know what it costs, right? That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And so what is indelible and um, undeniable about scripture is that God kind of set up culture, set up biblical society or the faith community in such a way, or even just the ways that he works in, in our lives in such a way that he works in a very strong sense through this notion of wisdom being passed down throughout the generations. You know, this notion of even how he is introduced in the Old Testament of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even when you relate it to the tabernacle being set up and the, the way that the high priesthood was ordained and how the, the sons would succeed him and how, you know, the robe would be placed from the father to the son. All of that really represents the passing of wisdom down from one generation to the next. And that's something that I think we can't get away from because if we do, I think we risk a lot. And I think it's very precious when you talk about, you know, your grandfather, when I talk about people like Bishop Ulmer and others, our lives have been shaped by that wisdom. And when you really begin to think about and talk to people that have accomplished great things, what you find that is a common denominator in their story, regardless of what they went on to accomplish, is that they didn't do it by themselves. You know, they were all the beneficiaries, even people in our present day culture who think that they're self-made. When you really listen to them tell their story, and I love to do this, I love to just ask people, tell me your story, particularly people who have achieved a lot. And the common denominator that you will always hear are the people that were providentially kind of uh, placed in their life and that were gatekeepers, that opened doors, that gave them opportunities, that maybe even sold a nugget of wisdom that helped launch businesses and uh, best-selling books. All of those individuals were there providentially and helped kind of serve as shoulders for those individuals to stand on. And so there's no such thing as a self-made person in our culture. And I think that goes to show the uniqueness of wisdom versus knowledge. So to your second question, do these individuals need a place in our society? I think the undeniable answer is yes. But do they need a place of celebrity? Do they need a place of notoriety? Great point. I don't think that that is nearly as important as people understanding the value of connecting with someone that has that wisdom, that learned experience, that's further down the road. Even, even universities are set up based on this system of wisdom, right? We don't go to a university and receive from a peer. We go to a university and receive from individuals that are learned, that are studied, that are practiced. You know, they balance orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and they're able to synthesize all of that in a way that sharpens the minds of young people. You know, it's that whole Socratic method. They don't necessarily give us all the answers, but they give us the wisdom we need to really begin to sharpen our own acts so that we can make our contribution to society or to whatever we're pursuing in a significant way. And so that is the way of the world, whether it is popular or not. And I would suggest that's the way that God ordered society to function best. 
So we absolutely need a place for those individuals. And I think that the, the you know seniors and individuals that have kind of reached a certain status or station in life where they're willing to look back and give a hand uh, to others coming behind them, I think they absolutely are needed now more than ever. I mean, think about it. We just, and I don't mean this to be political in any way, but could it be that there's something to the fact that we just elected one of the oldest presidents? You know, I right. mean, th- this, this notion of whether you have expectations or fears about the kind of leadership that he's going to provide, I think that there is something to be said about the way he's behaved in the midst of a divided country and his age and his experience. I, I think that that speaks to it. It's amazing when you think about his story and how often he sought the White House, but yet he doesn't get it until he's 78 years old. That speaks to wisdom. You know, one of my favorite Jewish traditions is about Rabbi Akiva, who's one of the major sages of the Jewish past, where he doesn't even start his journey towards becoming a sage until he's 40 years old. He doesn't even start. That's when he's kind of learning just his ABCs. And, you know, I spoke about this with Tommy Collison on one of our previous episodes about how I always find it so strange when people rail against, you know, a curriculum, you know, whether it's in universities or in schools or whatever, it's all dead white men. Now, I get two thirds of that, right? It's too many white people. We need something more racially diverse. I get it. Too many men. We're ignoring 50 percent of the population, but dead like the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived are dead, right? If anything, dead people are underrepresented in our curriculum. And, and as a consequence, ancient wisdom, I think, is, is deeply underrepresented in our culture. And so I love the idea that we're sort of underrating ancient wisdom. But, you know, one thing that that gets me thinking about in, in the context of our conversation is, as you say, we don't necessarily want celebrity for people with with wisdom and you know with wisdom and experience you know as opposed to knowledge and information but you do want them to have a real place of prominence in people's minds so one thing i was thinking as i was reading through your book i'm reading through the people factor was you have one of the chapters i think it's the chapter on on sacrifice or maybe the chapter right after that where you talk about orpa a biblical character from the book of ruth as a model for uh you know the people who are going to be in your life who like really are there to stick it out with you And it actually got me thinking, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, I feel like there are a lot of B-side biblical characters. Like, everybody's heard of Moses, right? Everybody's heard of people. Who's, like, the one biblical character that you wish more people knew about, more Americans knew about, who don't otherwise know? Well, it's it's funny you you reference that because I'll give you two because it's a hard kind of toss-up. Oh, man, and now that I think about it, uh, let me give you three, and you can choose. Uh, it's hard, but that's a um, hard question it, to ask a pastor. <laughs> it is, you know. Well, you talk about the the section when I talk about Ruth and Orpa, and just to clean it up a little bit, Orpa, I think, is a picture of people who really won't commit to you in a relational way. They are there for the short term; they're there only for what they can get from you. But what you see between Ruth and Naomi is is a very special unique bond that spans tragedy and uh you know all kinds of time and inconvenience and i think that's what's so special about it so i definitely think ruth is one of those kinds of unknown characters but she's a little bit more known than zipporah i'll give you zipporah number two i talk about in the people factor the law of people who are kind of behind the scenes that sometimes the greatest people in your life, which I think speaks to this notion of wisdom and them not having celebrity, sometimes the greatest people in your life are the people that are less visible. And if you ask anybody about Zipporah, most people that are halfway literate in the Bible probably don't know who she is. But if it were not for Zipporah, Moses would have been cut down. 
Christ, the wife of Moses. That's it. He is the wife of Moses that saves his life. And uh, there's a very, very special tale there about how she does it. And so, you know, I, I just think it speaks to the reality that sometimes people who are of critical value in our lives don't really get a lot of attention. And I think she's an example of that. But then here's my third. And so it's hard to toss up between Zipporah and this person that I'm getting ready to talk about, but Jephthah in the book of Judges. Nice. Jephthah, I think, is a tragic hero, but I think he typifies a lot of people in our present-day culture that want status and celebrity and whatever they define as success so badly that they are willing to sacrifice the most precious things, the most important things like family and character and integrity on the altar of whatever it's going to take to get those things that are not nearly as valuable. And when you talk about wisdom, a lot of times that happens in your youth. That happens because people, as I said before, know the price rather of everything, but they don't know what it costs, meaning they haven't had the time to really discern what's most important. You know, when you're younger, you're shooting for the moon and you want it all and you want it all now. And a lot of times it takes time and it takes wisdom for you to begin to evaluate, but is it good for me? I may want it, but is it best for me? Or even does it line up with the values that I want to build my life on? Or will it help me? in terms of the kind of legacy that I want to live. And I think Jephthah is one of those kinds of individuals, biblically, that all too often we see in our present-day culture where people don't wrestle with those big questions, and uh, they just sacrifice a lot. And then, often, they become cautionary tales because they do achieve maybe the status that they want, or they uh, achieve the trappings of whatever they define to be success and realize how hollow and empty it is because then they've sacrificed all of the really good, meaningful things. And you see this play out in tons of movies and tons of music, right? The, the story is the same. This person spends so much of their life grabbing for something only to get it and recognize that in the process, they pass by all of the things that were deeply meaningful and valuable. And so, you know, Jephthah, I, I think, is that character. So you asked me for one, I gave you three. How about that? <laughs> so that actually makes me think of, of a final question, which is I love, first of all, those are great cuts. <laughs> My personal, by the way, I usually go with like Hezekiah, Josiah, but Sipora, Jephthah, those are awesome cuts. Um, <laughs> and I love, <laughs> by the way, we could like geek out all day about this stuff. Yes. It would be amazing. Like that's a whole nother podcast. Just like yes. geeking yes. out about like being. <laughs> so I love the idea, underappreciated things in your life underrating the the significant things in your life in pursuit of other things. And that makes me think of the following question. So you've written in the past, you know, for the Christian Post or on social media. Um, your blog, by the way, is, is fantastic. I've been reading it a lot uh, for Fox News about the opportunities of Black History Month for growth and learning. And that's uh, a month we're in now by the time this episode drops. And one thing that strikes me every year is that so much of like the popular programming around Black History Month is like very general or it's like very secular. And G.K. Chesterton famously referred to America as a nation with the soul of a church. And while he said that in a very different context, I've always really felt that life and history in this country, for the majority, certainly that's what Chesterton was talking about, but also for minorities in the country, is basically unintelligible without an understanding of faith or religion. So I come from a community where the role of the synagogue and the role of deep Jewish tradition is essential to how I literally understand everything in my life. So as we're in the midst of Black History Month, can you talk about the importance of 
let's say, the church or faith in the black community in America? Well, you know, very similarly to how you described your upbringing, the, the church and faith has been quintessential and continues to be so, even in this time where I know that there are a lot of stats that show that church attendance and things of that nature are on the decline. You know, the, the truth for African Americans is that our faith is what we've held to that has allowed us to make it through the horrors of what it means to be Black in America. You know, whether you go back and look at people like James Cone, who helped to kind of talk about the Black experience through the lens of Scripture when he wrote many, many years ago in the 70s, God of the Oppressed, or, you know, when you look at present books, uh, like Reading While Black, you know, it all points to the same thing. That's Esau Macaulay, Yeah, Esau right? Macaulay, great book. I just picked up a copy. Yeah, of that. yeah, and it all points to the same thing that what we found through faith is the hope that's allowed us to really keep our heads held high when everything in society has been designed to push it down. And so our faith remains the centerpiece of who we are as a people and where we get the belief that things can quintessentially change. You know, this uh, past year has been a year of horrors. It's been a year where a lot of people have been depressed and just very disillusioned about the future of our country. But yet, you know, people have often asked me and other people of color, how are you continuing on? Well, number one, you know, what we've seen last year is pretty much every day for people of color. But beyond that, this is also a great example of why faith is so important. Because even when you connect the dots with the history of the children of Israel, the ability to look beyond the suffering and the struggle and connect with a God that's bigger than that, but also has better plans or a hope for a better future, that is quintessentially the language of Black America. That's how our ancestors made it through slavery. That's how uh, our ancestors made it through the segregated South and Reconstruction. And that's you know, quintessentially how we're still making it through today. I, I think that the bedrock of our culture is our faith traditions. I think what's interesting, though, is there is a generation coming up that is translating that in a different way when you start talking about millennials and others. But the focus still is there, that we are quintessentially a people of faith, and we recognize that it's our faith that's guided us and will continue to guide us in a you know myriad of different ways. And so when we think about Black history, you know, we're talking about the sacrifices, the legacy, the unique contributions that people of color have made not only to America, but to life as we know it. You know, I often reflect on the fact that I stand on the shoulders of so many individuals that gave, you know, so much, uh, including their own lives so that I and my children could have some of the freedoms that so many other people in America take for granted. And I think Black History Month is a time for us to remember that and then to reflect on what that means as we go forward, because it is now our responsibility. The torch, in essence, has been passed to us. You know, my, my entire life is really about laying down a runway for my children to take off and to stand on my shoulders and to reach higher. And, and that's in many ways what we're celebrating when we reflect on things like Black History. Amen. Pastor Moody, thank you so much for joining me. The book is The People Factor. Pastor Moody is the founding pastor of the Worship Center in Birmingham, Alabama. Go visit when you're in the area, if that's your tradition. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rabbi Ari. This has been a great conversation, man.
One of the great blessings of the internet age is that we can connect to more people and have access to more information than at any other time in the history of humanity. But by the same token, I think of the great challenge of our age as being not letting this embarrassment of riches overwhelm us. Yes, we can know anything we want to know, and that's an amazing thing. But knowledge is still not the same as wisdom. Yes, we can connect to anyone in the world, and that's incredible, but a retweet is still not the same as a real relationship. When all is said and done, the best things and people we can invest in are the traditions, teachers, and communities, those tsiporas, that sacrifice sometimes or maybe especially behind the scenes to invest in us. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.